I think the Middle East is a place that's so misrepresented, but it's got such a rich tapestry of culture and history. And you just rarely get to hear ordinary people talking about their lives in an ordinary way. I'm Tanya Kurson, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media. Each month, we feature one of our favorite books on the intersection of food, politics, and culture, and invite the authors to share their unique insights with us on the podcast. Since we're avid cooks and eaters at Real Food Media, we're always on the lookout for new cookbooks that light up our taste buds, but also go beyond the recipes to convey the amazing power of food to bring us together promote healing, and build our movements for peace and justice. This month's selection is one of those extraordinary cookbooks. Zaytun Recipes from the Palestinian Kitchen by Yasmin Khan uses gorgeous photography and the power of storytelling to bring to life the luscious diversity of Palestinian cuisine. The title of the book, Zaytun, is the Arabic word for olive, a fruit that's central to Palestinian culture. Olives, and especially olive oil, are definitely the star of these recipes. But the title also speaks to the deeper connections between culture, identity, and land. While the olive branch is a universal symbol of peace, the destruction of olive groves under Israeli occupation have also made it a symbol of injustice and resistance. Part cookbook, part travelogue, and part investigative journalism, Zaytun takes us through the joy and the struggle of eating in the occupied Palestinian territories. Yasmin Khan is a best-selling and award-winning author and broadcaster who's passionate about sharing people's stories through food. Her critically acclaimed books, The Saffron Tales and Zaytun, use everyday stories of human connection to challenge stereotypes of the Middle East. She's a regular media commentator and writes for a variety of publications, including The Guardian, Saver, Afar, Food 52, and Roads and Kingdoms, among others. Prior to her food writing career, Yasmin trained in law and worked as a human rights campaigner for a decade. Hi, Yasmin. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Really lovely to yeah be on your show. First off, I have to say this book was so beautiful and, and impressive to me, in part because I've worked in human rights and social justice for many years, and, and I've seen how food is this amazing source of resilience for people. But I don't think I've seen a cookbook that so skillfully combined food history and politics. Uh, How did you navigate writing about the challenges of of Palestinian life while also conveying the the amazing beauty of Palestinian food culture? I think in the book, I talked about a woman who I spoke to who raised the really important point about how... um, you can't talk about Palestinian food without actually talking about the other wider realities that Palestinians face. And I thought that it was really important to include that, you know, not something that's coming from me as an outsider, but from a Palestinian voice, because I think it's so easy with food, especially nowadays, it's so kind of, you know, trendy. And it's like, you know, we're all like salivating over pictures of salads and cakes on Instagram mm-hmm. that, that, you know, you can sometimes forget that that behind all of that, you know, the way food is grown, um, you know, people's access to food, how food is distributed, how it's cooked, these are all, you know, influenced by the social and political context that people live in. 
you know, simply by having an armed military presence over land um, means that just various things like checkpoints, which are these kind of blocks in the road which Palestinians have to pass through, you know, checkpoints really limit people's freedom of movement. Israel is also kind of building this huge separation wall around the West Bank and the path of that wall circles around vital water supplies, cuts through essential agricultural land. And of course, I think kind of in Gaza, probably it's most evident how the Israeli occupation has affected Palestinian food culture, because Gaza is an area, it's just a tiny bit of land, 25 miles long and around six miles wide, where around 2 million people live. And for the last 11 years, um, Palestinians living in Gaza have been subjected to a blockade where nothing is allowed in or out without the Israeli army approving it. Mm. Um, And that blockade has plunged Palestinians in Gaza into terrible food poverty. You know, according to the United Nations, um, 80% of Palestinians in Gaza are dependent on food aid to survive. Um, According to Amnesty International, 97% of the water there is undrinkable. Um, You know, the people I was speaking to were saying that there was remnants of white phosphorus, um, which is a chemical weapon which was used against Palestinians by the Israeli army in Operation Kastled in 2009. So, you know, all of these things matter affect the food culture. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't still an incredibly vibrant love of food in Palestinian culture. It doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of pleasure and joy that you see on a daily basis through Palestinian generosity. So, you know, that all exists. But I guess it's just about trying to show both of those things, because I think that's really the sum of the human experience as well. You know, we can experience pleasure even in the most dire of circumstances because the human spirit is so resilient. Wow. Yeah, that's really a big takeaway for me from your book. And and speaking of Gaza, like, I was surprised and and just delighted even to learn that, you know, Gazan cuisine is known for its abundant use of dill, (laughs) which I love. Yeah, dill seed was like a new discovery for me. Um, So, you know, the holy trinity of Gazan cuisine, as as I write in the book, is green chilies and garlic and dill. Mm -hmm. But dill isn't just used with the fronds, you know, the herbs that that we commonly use, but dill seed is used, which has got a particular kind of aroma um and you know that's used as a basis for marinades for soups for casseroles you know one of the things that really struck me as I was traveling through the region was just you know the regional diversity that exists Mm. Uh, you know it reminds me a lot of kind of Italy where you go from one village to another village and the way they make a, a tomato sauce is so different well it was completely the same in Palestinian villages you know one particular okra dish you could just travel 10 miles and they'd be like no you know we only make that with you know allspice we'd never put <laughs> cumin in it and um yeah I love that that passion for um yeah for the passion for the food is just so strong in Palestinian culture I think is there a particular recipe from the book or, or maybe even not from the book that stayed with you most strongly not not just for you know sort of how delicious it is but also maybe for the story that that it's connected to Yeah, I mean, um, you know, for people who don't know or are listening to this podcast and not knowing my work, what I do is I I travel around places. So I did that in Iran for my first book, around Israel and the West Bank um, and Gaza for the second book. And what I do is I often cook in people's homes. And for me, therefore, a lot of my favorite memories um, for this book were actually when I was invited into someone's home and we were cooking together. Mm. 
I think one of my favorite stories is from Jerusalem, where I was in the home of Reem Talami, who is a Palestinian opera singer. Mm. And she combines kind of singing classic Palestinian folk songs with her own training in Western opera. And she's just got an incredible voice. So anyway, it was this beautiful, hot summer's day. And she was making this really refreshing fatouche salad which is made from crisp lettuce, juicy sweet tomatoes, cucumber. It has some bell peppers in there and lovely shards of, of toasted pita bread. And then it's dressed in this really zingy dressing of, of lemon juice and olive oil and sumac, which is this astringent powder made from a dried berry. Anyway, so we're making the salad together. And, you know, in between, she would just like sing us these songs. And it was so... <laughs> Um, it was so incredible and then halfway through she was like oh wait a minute let me go and show you something and she went to her room and she pulled out this traditional um, Palestinian dress with some tattoos this incredible like embroidery on it and she's like, oh, this is the dress that Yasser Arafat gave me when I sang for him in Tunisia. Wow. Like, oh, my God. You know, so you just feel like you kind of were always getting these little snippets of history. And, and it was incredibly joyous that afternoon, even though, you know, the stories that she was telling me about how hard it was being in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, I think, out of all the cities I visited, it's yeah. the most intense. It just feels like a pressure cooker, uh, that place. So, you know, it's not an easy place to live. And so having this incredibly life-affirming woman who was both singing and, and being so generous by inviting us into her home and also sharing incredible food was such an incredible way to see Palestinian life in that divided city. Mm, I love that. <laughs> You meet with people from all walks of life in the book, which I, I think is really beautiful. And, and each of them sort of offers to teach you how to make a dish and and they're sharing this knowledge and, and they're sharing this story. And it, it's so relatable and it's so human. And, you know, it occurs to me that there's actually so much bravado um, in the food world, you know, not just the sort of aestheticization or Instagramization of food, Um but just a, like a lot of ego, I think, among, you know, chefs and celebrity chefs especially. But you really made yourself a kind of vessel for people to share their stories and their perspectives. And is that an approach that you took really deliberately? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest. If anybody wants to find a good recipe, you can just go online and, and you'll probably find one. <laughs> um, for me, what makes books stand out, what makes books, you know, these things that we want to pass on to other people is the writing and the stories. And for me, I just thought, you know, as someone with roots in the Middle East, I'm, I'm half Iranian, but, you know, obviously grown up in the UK and with a human rights background, really, I've wanted in my books to kind of use the fact that I've got a foot in both worlds to, to be able to share these wonderful stories from the Middle East. You know, I think the Middle East is a place that's so misrepresented, mm. often only through being seen to the narrow prism of the political situation. But it's got such a rich tapestry of culture and history. And you just rarely get to hear ordinary people talking about their lives in an ordinary way, you know. Mm. So I make sure in, in all of my books to you know, be talking to a diverse group of people, whether it's like school teachers or nurses or businesswomen or 
hip-hop musicians or mm. graphic designers, as well as, you know, farmers and cafe owners. And, you know, I think that's where you really get a snapshot into what life is really like. And, yeah, it's so wonderful to be able to offer up a space where people can tell their own stories. Absolutely. And is that what drew you to writing specifically about Palestinian food in, in this project? Well, I think that the issue facing the Palestinian people is one of the key justice issues of our time. Mm. I think history is going to look back on the last hundred years, especially seeing what happened in Gaza. And I think, um, you know, we collectively as a human race will have seemed to have failed these people quite a lot. So for me, the Palestinian cause has always been one that's been very dear to my heart. And I worked for a number of years in, in a professional NGO setting mm. for a British human rights charity which was what first took me over to Israel and the West Bank about kind of 12 years ago. So, I, you know, I was really familiar with the region, really familiar with the food, you know, and I just thought, well, actually having spoken about Iran, you know, Palestine seemed the next obvious spot mm. uh, in that the food is delicious. And mm. I don't think we really get to hear from Palestinian voices as often as we should. So it's not the main focus of your book, of course, but, you know, we as Israel Food Media based in the United States, talk a lot about the food movement, right? Which, of course, encompasses many issues from sustainability and the climate crisis and health. But I definitely got glimpses of food movement in Palestine, maybe even a growing food movement from people working to preserve native seed varieties to chefs reviving traditional ingredients to Palestinians, you know, starting microbreweries to strengthen their local economies. And, and all of this, of course, in the context of the many restrictions and, and violence of the occupation. Um, but would you say that there is sort of the contours of a Palestinian food movement? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Palestinian civil society is the most organized and diverse civil society that I've seen anywhere yeah. you know it's really quite impressive and you'll almost find every single aspect of society will be organized in some way mm. and that's no different for food uh, yeah and I met some incredibly inspiring people you mentioned seed preservation and there's a really inspiring woman called Vivian Sansour who lives in Betzahur which is kind of near Bethlehem in, in the West Bank and she made it her mission over the last few years to, to try and, and collect and preserve heirloom seeds because, you know, in Palestine, just like everywhere else in the world, we're seeing the growth of, you know, multinational companies that are they're really pushing their seeds on, on farmers, which isn't good for the ecosystem and is kind of making big multinationals lots of money. Um, so, you know, that that's very similar to things that we can relate to in the US and, and certainly in Europe. You know, the slow food movement, you know, I visited a great place in Nablus, a women's cooperative that was very linked up with like Italian slow food movements and taking on those principles in their work. Um, and just there are so many kind of initiatives. I think one of my favorite ones, again, is, is I visited this kind of women's cooperative in the north of the West Bank that were making their own zata, which is this mm. incredible spice mix of thyme and sesame seeds and sumac, as well as hand rolling maftul, which is like a kind of a coarse bulgur wheat. So, yeah, I feel like it's, it's just really dynamic. And there's lots of opportunities to take part as well, you know, mm. if, if anybody wants to go over. I mean, every year for the olive harvest, thousands of internationals go and, and visit and take part in it. And the olive harvest is in the fall. 
And it's a wonderful way to show solidarity with Palestinian food movement. Yeah, that's really beautiful. That's actually one of the things I was going to ask you about in ways that we can show solidarity. Um, but also sort of related to that, throughout your book, you encourage people, readers of your book, to use locally available ingredients, you know, wherever they are in, in making the recipes. And and the recipes are so adaptable and accessible, I think, that they can really be made anywhere by anyone. But then there are times when you occur, encourage people to buy, you know, the sort of authentic, probably imported products, like, for example, olive oil. You know, people might be wondering, listening to this podcast, about buying fair trade Palestinian products, for example, or boycotting Israeli foods. Do you have any thoughts along those lines for people cooking from your cookbook and how to ethically source ingredients? I mean, I always encourage people to kind of buy local um, wherever they can. Um, and, you know, eating seasonally is a big part of that. You know, in some bits of the world, like the US, that's, that's a lot easier for, for Middle Eastern food. You know, in places like the UK, I mean, we don't have olive, olive oil, you know, there's, there's no way we can do that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with trade. I think trade throughout history has been a really important way for people to grow their economies and for culture to exchange. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just about trying to do it within the right balance, you know. And that means in the, in the book, I often say you can substitute ingredients quite easily because, you know, they're recipes. They're not, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's not like trying to construct a house. <laughs> um, but I do always think that, if, if you know, one of the best ways to support the Palestinian economy is to buy Palestinians. I, I always used to buy kind of Spanish and Italian olive oils mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm in Europe and then they're the closest ones to me and they're very delicious. But actually... Palestinian olive oils are available now in pretty much every store. And I guess same goes to the US. I mean, you can get them in a lot of health food stores and in Whole Foods and things. And I think it's just a wonderful way of supporting the economy of a place and a people. So we really, really need our political support, but also our economic support. Um, and in terms of boycotting Israeli goods, um, I'd really encourage people to go and have a look at the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions website. It's called BDS. Um, which really goes into detail about why Palestinian civil society has called upon people around the world, people of conscious, to not buy Israeli products, to make sure that they're not investing in Israeli companies, and also that they encourage their governments to take sanctions um, against the Israeli government for its human rights abuses. A campaign I was involved in here in the UK, for example, is, has been to encourage the British government to stop selling arms to, to Israel because we've, we've seen numerous times reports that have said that British arms components from arms in the UK have been used by the Israeli army against Palestinians, which makes, you know, the, the British government and our country complicit in these crimes. So, you know, I think there's lots that people can do. The main thing I wanted to do with this book is just to start a conversation because, you know, I think you say, you know, you say Israel and Palestine in any kind of public context, and I feel like instantly people get a bit tense, like mm. it's a bit of a contentious subject. People are worried sometimes about 
you know, what to say about it, that, you know, sometimes people don't understand certain aspects but are worried to ask because it can feel inflammatory. And what I really wanted to do is say that, look, it doesn't have to be that way, you know? This isn't that complex a situation. There's probably more that we can all relate to about the Palestinians than is divisive. And actually, if we want to kind of move towards a world where everybody living in that area, no matter what ethnic group they are, my hope would be that they could live in peace and in justice together, then, you know, that just involves having these conversations and not being afraid to. And I think culture and food is a great way to start, yeah, talking about these things. Absolutely. On a personal note, I've been planning a, a dinner party around your book, and every time I say, oh, I'm going to cook a Palestinian feast, and I get these looks like, really? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so, I love it. I love the, just getting that, that look of questioning look, and like, no, you'll see. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. That's the best a, bit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, being able to see people cook cook the dishes and everyone really enjoys the dishes you know I'm a home cook so mm -hmm. this isn't something like super chefy these, these are kind of dishes that you could just whip up when you get home from work you know you just need a few staple ingredients that you'll then use over and over again um, and everything yeah. else you can get just from your local grocery store yeah I think that's what's really lovely about the book is it doesn't have to be something really big and intense and let's organize a big event or fundraiser and let's talk about, you know, Israel and Palestine. It could, of course, be that, but it can also just be a way to plan some really delicious, healthful meals. <laughs> exactly. And have some fun. Yes. So lastly, what really resonated with me um, in the book, just a, a big takeaway is just hope, how much hope comes through the stories and, and the recipes that you share. And I I couldn't help but thinking about the United States right now and the, you know, proposed border wall and the elections and how many people are motivated by fear and despair or demotivated, maybe I should say. So is there a, a lesson or a key message to be learned from the Palestinians about hope? That's an excellent question. I mean, we live in tough times. <laughs> There's no getting away from it. I think that one of the main things I've got from my many trips to Palestine has been this overwhelming sense of resilience that Palestinians seem to have. And I think that the hope that they continue to have comes from two places. One it is in their continued struggle. You know, there is something that when you organize, when you work collectively, when you build communities, you get a great sense of well-being from that. Even if you're up against really forces that just seem so strong, it's only by organizing and by getting together, as in like getting off social media and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and connecting with people in real life that you, you start getting that resilience and that hope back and then I think the other aspect and this is maybe kind of it ties into my book a little bit is you know it's really easy to just constantly look around the world and just see doom and gloom but actually a big part of resilience is about making that choice every day to focus on the good and to focus on the positive because that kind of sparks the inner light inside you that then you can go out and replicate in whatever you do and I really think it's important to draw home that, that actually that is a choice that we make 
every day. And I think throughout the Middle East, you know, people there have gone through so much and yet they are never more than a minute away from someone putting on some music and then getting up and having a dance. Mm -hmm. They are never far away from like inviting strangers to their homes for dinner, even though they've never met them because they just want to, you know, learn about the person and have some fun. You know, that sense of, of putting all of the energy you have into enjoying life and loving life, I think is one of the best things you can do to cultivate hope. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review wherever you listen.